Welcome to Off the Books, a show about books and the people that love them. Some episodes are with a regular book club and some are with writers, talking about the books that have shaped their thoughts and lives. Today I'm joined by New Zealand-based poet Hira Lindsay Bird, who will be discussing the works that have influenced her writing. Dubbed by Poet Laureate Caroline Duffy, the most arresting and original new young poet on the page and in performance, her debut eponymous collection was first published in the UK by Penguin um, last year and she's just released her new chat book pamper me to hell and back masturbation peeing yourself social and professional angst dead male poets bruce willis love pain womanhood here is work takes the reader and listener on a journey through the sublime and the mundane through pathos and bathos it's the stuff of life and is truly invigorating exciting and inspirational in my opinion um, we'll be discussing the idiot by elif batuman some of Hilton Alves' essays and some poems by Mark Liebner. So thank you very much for joining me, Hera. Thanks for having me. Especially on a Saturday morning. <laughs> I've lost all sense of what day of the week anything is at the moment, so this could, as, could well be a Wednesday afternoon for me. Let's, let's go with that. Yeah. It's a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> the sun is not shining and we are not indoors on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Nobody's getting married today. No, not at all. Um... <laughs> Let's start with The Idiot by Elif Batman, which is actually on the, it's on the Bailey's shortlist, the Women's Prize shortlist this year, so definitely recommend reading it, listeners. Mm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the book and why you chose it? Um, so I read this, I've been kind of trying to read more contemporary fiction, because when I was writing poetry, I was just reading poetry for years and years and years, um, and then eventually I kind of got a bit sick of it and decided to snap out of it so I was trying to read a lot of contemporary fiction and um, I think I actually came across that I work in a bookshop so I see most of these books in my day-to-day life and um, just kind of reading the back of them while I'm shelving them and stuff but I think the thing that made me decide to read buy this one and read it was um, it was on a list of um, I think top funny books of 2017 and I'm always kind of any list that's um, that's you know, it's so hard to find, like, a good humour in contemporary fiction. Mm. Um, so I bought it, and I read it, and I just lost my mind. Like, I love it so much. It's immediately... You know when you read a book, and you're immediately like, this is my favourite novel? Yeah. Yeah, I just... Um, yeah, I've fallen so in love with it. Um, maybe that's a good moment to hear you read the opening of it, because it is hilarious and also heartbreaking, but just... Um, yeah, really speaks mm. to your soul. <laughs> Very dry, Elif Batchman. Fall. I didn't know what email was until I got to college. I'd heard of email and knew in some sense I would have it. You'll be so fancy, said my mother's sister, who had married a computer scientist, sending your emails. She emphasised the E and paused before the mail. That summer I heard email mentioned with increasing frequency. Things are changing so fast, my father said. Today at work, I surfed the World Wide Web. One second, I was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. One second later, I was in Anit Kabar. Anit Kabar, Ataturk's mausoleum, was located in Ankara. I had no idea what my father was talking about, but I knew there was no meaningful sense in which he had been in Ankara that day, so I didn't really pay attention. 
On the first day of college, I stood in line behind a folding table and eventually received an email address and temporary password. The address had my last name in it, Carida, but all lowercase and without the Turkish G, which was silent. From an early age, I had understood that a silent G was funny. The G is silent, I would say, in a weary voice, and it was always hilarious. I didn't understand how the email address was an address or what it was short for. What do we do with this? Hang ourselves? I asked, holding up the Ethernet cable. You plug it into the wall, said the girl behind the table. Insofar as I'd had any idea about it at all, I had imagined that email would resemble faxing and would involve a printer. But there was no printer. There was another world. You could access it from certain computers which were scattered through the ordinary landscape and looked no different from regular computers. Always there, unchanged, in a configuration nobody else could see, was a glowing list of messages from all the people you knew and from the people you didn't know, all in the same letters, like the universal handwriting of thought or of the world. Some messages were formally epistolatory with dear and sincerely, others telegraphic, all in lower case with missing punctuation, like they were being beamed straight from people's brains. And each message contained the one that had come before, so your own words came back to you. All the words you threw out, they came back. It was like the story of your relations with others, the story of the intersection of your life with other lives, and was constantly being recorded and updated, and you could check it at any time. Hannah bought a refrigerator for the common room. She said I could use it if I bought something for the room too, like a poster. I asked what kind of poster she had in mind. Psychedelic, she said. I didn't know what a psychedelic poster was, so she showed me her psychedelic notebook. It had a fluorescent tie-dye spiral with purple lizards walking around the spiral and disappearing into the centre. What if they don't have that, I asked. Then a photograph of Albert Einstein, she said decisively, as if that were the obvious next choice. Albert Einstein? Yeah, one of those black and white pictures. You know, Einstein. The campus bookstore turned out to have a huge selection of Albert Einstein posters. There was Einstein at a blackboard, Einstein in a car, Einstein sticking out his tongue, Einstein smoking a pipe. I didn't totally understand why we had to have an image of Einstein on the wall but it was better than buying my own refrigerator. The poster I got was no better or worse than the other Einstein posters in any way that I could see, but Hannah seemed to dislike it. Hmm, she said. I think it'll look good there. She pointed at the space over my bookshelf. But then you can't see it. That's okay. It goes best there. From that day on... Everyone who happened by our room, neighbours wanting to borrow stuff, residential computer staff, student council candidates, all kinds of people to whom my small enthusiasm should have been a source of little or no concern, went out of their way to disabuse me of my great admiration for Albert Einstein. Einstein had invented the atomic bomb, abused dogs, neglected his children. There were a great There were many great, greater geniuses than Einstein, said a Bulgarian freshman who had stopped by to borrow my copy of Dostoevsky's The Double. Alfred Nobel hated mathematics and they didn't give the Nobel Prize to any mathematicians. There were many who were more deserving. Oh, I handed in the book. Well, see you around. Thanks, he said, glaring at the poster. 
This is the man who beats his wife, forces her to solve his mathematical problems, to do the dirty work, and denies her the credit. And you put his picture on your wall? Listen, leave me out of this, I said. It's not really my poster. It's a complicated situation. He wasn't listening. Einstein in this country is synonymous with genius, while many greater geniuses aren't famous at all. Why is this? I am asking you. I sighed. Maybe it's because he's really the best and even jealous mudslingers can't hide his star quality, I said. Nietzsche would say that such a great genius is entitled to beat his wife. That shut him up. After he left, I thought about taking down the poster. I wanted to be a courageous person, uncowled by other people's dumb opinions. But what was the dumb opinion? Thinking Einstein was so great or thinking he was the worst? In the end, I left the poster up. Let's um, talk a bit about humour and which bits you find so funny. And I mean, you said before when we, when we were talking about the book um, that you love her, her extremely dry humour and her writing style. And I just wonder if you can expand a bit on that in relation to this passage. Yeah, I just, it, it's kind of one of those books where, I mean, there are some, some books that kind of have funny moments or like little bits of humour in them. But to me, even the painful passages in this book, and it is, it does have a lot of kind of, um, you know, pathos and heartbreak in this book. To me, to me, the end, like everything she says is just kind of has this, because it has such a flat um, effect or affect that it's, you kind of don't know which lines are supposed to be a joke and which aren't. So I kind of, you kind of read them all as if, kind of not knowing what the emotional. Um, yeah, kind of, there's this weird emotional uncertainty behind the whole thing and you're not really supposed to know whether you should laugh or Christ. kind of be kind of straight-faced or, yeah, have a bit of a weep. But, um, yeah, she's just kind of one of those brilliant writers to me. Like, I mean, she's nothing like P.G. Woodhouse, but it's the same kind of thing to me. Like, if you read a P.G. Woodhouse book, the entire book, even the, the really straight lines, have this kind of incredible deadpan humour to them. I wonder if um, some of that comes from her just her precision to detail and her her sort of observational attitude, just delineating the world around her, and you kind of realise how ridiculous the play, the world that we live in is. Um, and I wondered, like, how does this attention to detail? Is it something that you? focus on in your own work or that feels important kind of observing the mundane in in a way I think that um it's it's kind of a funny thing isn't it because attention to detail um I mean I know a lot about Elif Batcherman because after I read this book I um just read every single interview and podcast with her that she'd ever done and so I know a lot about the writing of this and I know that um she kind of talks about it as being um pretty autobiographical and in fact she wrote it when she was in her early 20s and only published it kind of 10 years later after it went through a really rigorous editing process because this was her kind of freshman college novel which is insane mm. um, and obviously she's probably tidied it up a bit but it meant that the things that she was writing about were happening in real time while she was writing them down in her diary so she has this kind of huge wealth of real information um, but it's not I, I don't think that everyone who writes in that kind of minute detail is always funny either yeah. because um, 
like I was I've, I was kind of catching up on my literary scandal history the other day and I um I really love Zadie Smith and I was reading about her feud with James Wood where he kind of took her and a whole bunch of other writers to task for what he calls hysterical realism I don't know if you kind of read that thing but it went it, it was like a this um yeah so he wrote a really bad review of one of her books and um and then she did a really kind of amazing response to it. But anyway, he's talking about this idea called hysterical realism where um, you kind of have so many details in a book in order to make it sound convincing. You'll be like, well, this person was a um, monsieur and his second cousin, you know, lived mm-hmm. in um, these council flats and played the saxophone and um, had a cat called um, Michael. And, you know, just like so much detail that like... Um, g- you know, in some people's hands it can be funny, but in some people, other people's it could be um, excessive. And sometimes, you know, creating that amount of fake detail, it's like, um, you know, when you watch those films about the Stasi and stuff and they're like, if they give you too much detail, like, or like overly try and explain things, you know that they're lying. Yeah, yeah, but this yeah. just has, like, you can, even without knowing that it was kind of based on the truth, it just has like this real ring of truth to all of the detail as well. Especially given that you, you're you reading it 10 years late. So, you know, the bit about email. Mm. And how that could so easily have felt conceited where you're like, okay, I want to write a book set in the 90s when I was a freshman. And for me then, email was really new. But if you're writing it retrospectively, how do you see the world anew again without the perspective that you've mm. gained in those 10 years, but this, you know, just read, which is like, what are we meant to do with the ethernet? You, you're saying that's one of your favorite bits, the ethernet cable, yeah. hang yourself. And it just, you're right. It just feels like you're there. Um, well, she's so, I mean, she, um, I think this kind of relates to something else we were talking about before, but she's so far, it's not even someone who's coming to college for the first time and experiencing life. Like she's really far removed from popular culture in a way that all of the other students around her are not as well, because she, um, you know, she, she, yeah, she's kind of like, while everyone else would have been one step removed, she's about three steps removed. And part of the book is like the process of her kind of like learning how to... The oscillation, almost. Yeah, kind of getting up to speed with the rest of the world, almost, you know. Yeah. Like, she just doesn't know. Like, it's so clear in the book that she just doesn't know how to be or... Or what other people mean when they say things, or like what the, um, yeah, what the appropriate way to behave at, at this kind of very weird um, institute is. I mean, I don't know if it says it in the book, but this is at, she's at Harvard studying linguistics in this book. Um, this, she doesn't. It's like she hasn't got the the book of social customs that she that everyone else has read. Um, I think this this relates um, nicely to my next question, which is. Um, I, th- I feel like one of the central, I guess, themes of the book or, or, or things that um, feel very relevant is an idea of alienation and otherness. Um, and she's, like, she's deeply involved in the world around her. She observes it so keenly, but also, like you say, is that one remove, constantly distant. Um, and I wonder, like, do you what's your relationship to the world around you and kind of putting that, uh, I guess, putting that on paper or taking elements from it Mm. and presenting it on paper in terms of feelings of alienation but also involvement? Well, I was never... When I went to college and stuff, I was never kind of quite as, like, socially... 
kind of weird as the as the character as Celine in this book is, but um, definitely, you know, like if you've kind of been been a bookish person all your life, like it is a big shock to kind of go into a culture like that and then um, kind of have to learn how to be a human person. Like I remember when I was in my twenties, I was like, man, I have to sort this out. I have to learn how to talk to people. Like fuck me, um, and. And so part of that is really, part of this book was really familiar to me in that sense. Um, but, sorry, I feel like I missed the second part of your question. What? I think it wasn't uh, really a question or a very good one. I suppose <laughs> I was wondering, how do you negotiate a sense of otherness or alienation within your work? Because as an outsider, I that was something that I suppose I got from both this book and from reading your work both a sense of being deeply involved in the world mm. in which you live but also um pl- like pleasantly surprised by its biz- how bizarre it can be or by just talk you know taking something quite mundane or everyday like mm. and I know that this example is quoted to you quite often you're always like I wish I hadn't picked that example but friends <laughs> for example you know like and when you deconstruct something that feels or is considered a natural part of pop culture that people don't ever question mm. I think that's I mean I think I think that probably most people who write or even probably create any kinds of art you you know when you sit down to make it you do put yourself at a remove from the rest of the world so um, but then, to me, like the that's that's not such an interesting stance, kind of that alienation, unless you're doing it like Elif Batchman. But but to me, like the interesting part is the tension between that part of her, which is kind of so so afraid and like uh, you know so removed from reality, but but when that kind of comes into contact with her trying to participate and kind of becoming involved in the world, because you can see as well, she has a really deep like love and engagement for um, being alive. And I, I think it's that tension that to me that like makes most of my favorite writers kind of have an aspect of that. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's probably, a, I mean, I think that's probably, I think it's maybe a good, good moment to talk about Hilton Owls. Hilton Owls. Good old yeah. Hilton. Um, can you, yeah, when did you first come to Hilton and, Hilton, Hilton? He's, he's not my friend. When did you first come to Hilton Owls and um, how has he shaped your writing? Um, Hilton Owls, I, I think he was someone that I just picked up from one of the bookshelves at work and um, I have this kind of funny relationship with essays where I do really like essays but I feel that... There's kind of, you know, uh, that kind of essay voice that people have where everything is kind of very, like, beautiful and cleanly written and and the the most, the best thing that you can hope for in a literary essay is someone who can, like, go from Voltaire to um, Britney Spears to, um, you know, the migration pattern of owls within like one paragraph and then you're like oh that's very accomplished but um it feels sometimes that kind of stuff feels quite empty or it feels kind of quite formulaic to me and I um the thing that like I adore Hilton Owls and I just think he's probably one of the most remarkable writers alive and um it feels it felt more like poetry to me when I read it because it has this um 
he doesn't bother trying to reinterpret his really um, intense and private emotional world to make it kind of more palatable to people. He kind of describes it. You you kind of feel you feel so within his mind and um and, and his world when you read it. And part of that is the very unusual style in which it's written. Um, but the one that the essay that I really loved is this really long one at the beginning called Twinship, um, which we can't read of any of because we'd be here for three days. But it's just the most I've just never heard he's one of those people who says things and you think of course that's true. I've never heard anyone say that before. But not only does he say things you've never heard people say before, he says them in a way that you haven't heard anyone say them. And to me, probably he's more similar to Anne Carson than anyone I've ever read. And he has this, um, I mean, he's got such an incredible critical faculties, but he also has this really beautiful kind of openness and like pathos and sentimentality in there as well. So he's not kind of just running academic rings around you. He's also being so generous with talking about his his life and his past, and it just kind of has everything at once. He's it's just the best. Yeah, he's he's got one other book called The Woman, which is really interesting too, which was published a long time ago. But White Girls is my favourite, I think. Yeah, just um, for the readers, we're talking. He was talking about White Girls, which was published in the US a while ago, but just came out in the UK, which is a book of essays by the writer Hilton Owls who is a New Yorker critic um, won a Pulitzer for criticism he predominantly writes about theatre and art um, Mm. but this collection White Girls um, some of the essays were published I mean all of them were published in other places originally but they're all essays in which um, he under the kind of amorphous category of white girls or through that lens discusses a subject. So the essay mm. that Hero was talking about, Twinship, talks about um, his first great love, who, um, well, one of his first great loves, who dies of AIDS, but also his mainly his relationship with another black man who he doesn't have a romantic relationship with but feels a very strong twinship with um, mm. and then other essays are on Truman Capote um, there's one who he deems as a white girl and there's another one on a Vogue editor uh, they're really uh, eclectic and we de- definitely recommend you check them out um, but maybe this is a good moment to read different essay that you were going to Ghosts in Sunlight yeah so this is um, I mean his his you kind of, I feel like you can't really read an excerpt from one of his essays just because they're so, you know, you've got to have the whole thing. But he also but wrote this kind to. of commencement <laughs> speech that I really love called Ghosts in the Sunlight, which is a little bit easier to kind of re- maybe take a paragraph from yeah. or something. And it's, um, and it's, I mean, it's just, a, it's, it's actually kind of quite unlike the rest of the stuff in his book. Like it's not, um, I wouldn't say that it's kind of, the most representative of his writing at all, but it is an incredibly beautiful essay. And I like I am a sucker for like inspiration, you know, commencement essays. Like I I I do have that like basic bitch, like tell me how to live kind of thing going on. Really, so really um do. I love this one. And it's it's such a beautiful kind of meditation on kind of how to honor the people in your lives and how to honor people through art and um create have a good life as an artist. Take it away. All right. 
I also really love Truman Capote as well. So yeah. it's like a, it's kind of a nice. I love the way he talks about Truman Capote. Yeah. Like he's almost like he's having like... an affair with him. <laughs> Ghosts in Sunlight. This happened in 1967. That year, the American author Truman Capote, then 43 years old, published a beautiful essay he titled Ghosts in Sunlight. The piece, it's not very long, describes the author's experience on the set of the film adaptation of his 1966 best-selling book In Cold Blood. At one point, Capote relates how the actors impersonating the real-life protagonist in his famous non-fiction novel unsettled him, rattled him, for there they were, alive and interpreting the thoughts and feelings of men he had known long before, dead men he could not shake. Capote describes this experience as being akin to watching ghosts in sunlight, a lovely metaphor about memory and the real converging to make the world something else, and the artist someone else too. Standing on that film set, the Capote who had written In Cold Blood was a relative ghost to the film being made. He was a spectre standing in the sunlight of his former self. I think I understand something about the anxiety Capote expresses in the piece. I certainly understand when he relates how, at some point during his In Cold Blood process, he'd fall into bed with a bottle of scotch and pass out, the victim of a disorienting emotional flu. Nostalgia is one thing, but making art out of the past is another thing altogether, a Herculean effort in that known and unknown landscape we might well call the metaphysical. It's a land where all artists dwell, and that your years at Columbia School of the Arts have prepared you to meet head-on. By now you have developed the stamina of Hercules or Sisyphus, as you do the joyful, maddening and true work of artists, these sometimes whistling and sometimes wretched builders and destroyers of truth and memory, makers who take from the past their memories to create a present that shimmers with veracity and poetry. I wonder if you, like me, feel just now like a ghost in the sunlight, awash in memories as your life shifts from student to professional and your professors become your colleagues. I'll pull rank now, but just for a moment, and say that my ghosts are probably older than yours. I mean almost Madonna old, and her 1980s music is there in my reminiscences along with so much more as I recall that the majority of my ghosts became just that during the AIDS crisis which I first read about while I was a student at Columbia in 1981 or so. I met those now-gone boys at Columbia sometime before I met you. In memory, they wear what they wore then. Oxford button-downs, and they smoke and gossip in the sun that always makes the steps of the low library, the very steps you've sat on yourself, look like a sketch in a dream. Tomorrow was far away then, and then it wasn't. I see those gone boys and I hear their laughter and I love them even more as I watch you all now in your sunlight. For your time at Columbia and your life in this particular section of Manhattan is becoming part of your past very quickly now. All the moments of making yourself, your artist self, mixed up these final days and hours before you face other realities, other dangers, other hopes and other presents that are destined to become the past too. And undoubtedly you will try to make art out of this beautiful ephemera the merging of the past with the present, because you're artists, chroniclers of who you are and who you might be and who we all are together. The artist's memory is a dangerous, necessary thing. Never disavow what you see and remember it's your brilliant stock and trade, remembering and making something out of it. 
Artists remember the world as it is first because you have to know what you're reinventing. That's a rule, perhaps the only one, being cognizant of your source material. I have never believed, not for one second, that art is created out of avoiding the world and its various realities. If you avoid that, you avoid life, which is your source material. You dishonour all your ghosts in the sunlight, including the person you were when I began this speech, the Columbia boys I knew and loved long ago, the politically oppressed poet who changed a face, and you dancing with my former self before we part, and you walk proudly into your sunlit hope, ghosts and all. Thank you. Um, you said you, you love literature that, that tells you how to live. What do you learn from this passage? What do you take away from it? <laughs> it's so hard to distill Hilton Ells into any sensible piece of advice because the way he does it is just, I mean, the advice is just everything that he says. But um, I think that it's, to me, particularly that last passage there when he's kind of talking about um, writing, kind of being an act of honouring people and honouring your past and your truth. I think about that. I think about that passage all the time, especially if you're someone like me who kind of writes autobiographically as well. Can you? Um, do you mind me asking who who do you honour in your work? Can you expand on that? I mean, I think I think we all have kind of different people. I like I write a lot of love poetry, so um, a lot of it is kind of about people I've I'm in relation. I've, you know, you know, my current partner or, or ex-partners. But um, I think even more broader than that, one of the things I really love about Hilton Owls is he's one of those people that has, you can feel in his work, and, I mean, his, his essay collection is kind of predicated on this, is um, kind of creating a canon for yourself. So, so it, it, it's kind of a pretentious thing to do in a way, but one of the ways that really helped me learn to write was... Um, to have that kind of canon of all of the people that I loved and I still feel like I'm in conversation with those people, all of those kind of dead writers that I love so much when I write now. So It reminds me of something you said when we were um, <clears throat> doing uh, emails about this back and forth. You said you um, his writing makes you feel like you've temporarily hijacked someone else's brain and that's something that you love about it, like the experience of being in someone else's psyche. Can you... Can you talk a bit more about that in relation to Hilton Owls? Well, you just, I mean, you just really feel, I think that's kind of what I was saying um, earlier, that there's no, it doesn't seem to be, I mean, obviously there is translation involved because there's translation in all writing, kind of taking your thoughts and putting them on the page, but the translation feels less... Um, it feel, I, when I read Hilton Owls, I feel like I'm because his speech is so idiosyncratic. Um, maybe not so much in that essay, which is... I mean, it, it, you can still hear the Hilton Owls in that, but particularly in his co um, collection, White Girls, you just know when you read him that you're not reading anyone else, and even if someone else tried to Im imitate him, it wouldn't be possible. And that's the kind of writer, that's that's my kind of writer, the, the people who have that voice, and you really feel like you are somehow have been like beamed directly into their brain because um, 
just kind of the cadence of his voice and um, the just the freight. I, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's all of that boring kind of nuts and bolts writerly stuff, which sounds so reductive when you try and kind of be like, well, this sentence is you know, beautifully written. But I, I think there's a really, to me, there's a huge generosity there in allowing someone not only access to your thoughts but also the way you think, because I think that so many people do the former, but not that many people to me do the latter and he's he's yeah he ticks all the boxes yeah I feel like I mean one of my questions is going to be around I guess generosity and love because I feel like he has both a love affair with his subjects but also with the reader and I wonder do you um do you try and be gent I mean maybe how to phrase the question without it being an annoying question is generosity something that you want to, to imbue your work with well, I, not in the kind of sentimental idea of, um, you know, like, like a, to, to say kind of what a generous piece of writing is, is like, I mean, it's, it's impossible to say. But I think I think about this a lot in relation to um, autobiographical writing because so many people, they talk about this kind of writing um, being a kind of narcissism which it is, of course, in a way, because all writing is a kind of all all art creation kind of has an aspect of narcissism to it, of course, I think. But um, you know, particularly I kind of read these essays by these kind of like angry older white men who are like really furious about, you know, yet another essay collection by kind of young women or whoever talking about their personal life. But to me, when I read those books, and I'm sure that like many other people have this experience as well, it's it's unlike anything else to read someone, particularly if you have something in common with them, mm. talking really honestly about what it feels like to be alive. Because, I mean, we can all read Jonathan Franzen until our fucking teeth fall out. But, like, what does he, you know, yeah, he, yeah. he's he's not for everyone, you know. the I, I've learned so much from those people who were, kind of brave enough to talk about their life in that way and so I think that I mean generosity sounds so fucking new agey but I think what I mean when I say that is um realizing that you have an audience and um knowing that kind of sharing that stuff while it can be kind of narcissistic and egocentric if it's done wrong it can also open up the world for other people so Yeah, yeah I suppose it's it's also in part, um, not taking, to be very reductive, the white male canon as um, literature and everything else sort of ghettoised in in the arena of the personal, you know, that there's space for both. But, um, it's incredible to me that someone, you know, all of those guys can be like, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't write like autobiography, you know, I don't, I, I write fiction. And then you read like their seventh novel about like a tenured professor having like a, a horrible like... 500 page romance with a sexy young co-ed and you're like are you fucking kidding me this is autobiographical as shit we were like, literally just before you arrived we were talking about how I mean almost fiction is a style rather than a um, genre in some ways but mm. let's I mean I think I'm making big claims about stuff I know nothing about big um, claims yeah, yeah big claims sorry guys you heard it here first fiction's a style it doesn't exist it's fake news um <laughs> One of the things I wanted to talk about is love. Al's is a romantic, and you said in your Guardian interview, I don't know what being a romantic really entails. 
So I'm going to ask you again. Are you a romantic? What does it entail? What I don't, role, I don't role, know what being a romantic yeah. really entails. <laughs> what, 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 role, what role does love play in your... Because your poems are very funny. There mm. is an element, I think, of um, maybe frivolity and uh, some elements of cynicism in others, but a lot of them have a, have a, a very deep, sincere love to them. Um, well, I, it's kind of... Partly it's because all of the poetry that I really loved growing up was love poetry, and so I kind of read Frank O'Hara and, um, um, you know, all of the American New York school poets who have so many love poems. But I also, I don't know if it's kind of the same in this country, but when I was doing my MA, I had this feeling, you kind of, I had this feeling that it was a bit, considered a bit tacky to write about love until you were at least onto your fourth collection and you'd, you know, you'd kind of earned the right to do that. Um, and so... Partly that's why there are so many kind of love poems in my first one because I was being a reactionary shit. But also, I just like, I, I think it's just the stage of life that I'm in too. I mean, you just write from where you are. And I've just like chronically been in long-term relationships for the last 10 years. I don't know if chronically is the right word. But, you know, like I... Um, I call myself a serial monogamer. Yeah, yeah. It's a hu- <laughs> I mean, it's monogamy. a huge part of my life and it's a huge part of the, the lives of so many other people. And I'm perfectly willing to admit that, you know, when I get to 40 or 50 and maybe like the love poem, Well is Run Dry, I'll be able to write some kind of beautiful, beautiful acerbic poems about my most recent divorce or something like that. Or, <laughs> or you know, I'll... Have have you know other things happen to you in your life, but um, yeah, I do I do have a particular fondness for kind of love poetry. On that note, let's move on to talk a little bit about Mark Leidner. Leidner, Leidner. I say Mark Leidner, but he, um, you say Leidner, I say Leidner. You know, we know he's yeah. we know he's from the good stock. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I um haven't I haven't ever said it to anyone who's uh, met him in. I know I have said it to people I've met in person before, but no one's corrected me, so who knows? Let's blame it on my accent if I'm wrong. No, I th- I think this is more me. Um, I'm deaf. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm wrong here, but I don't know. Um, what I do know is his poetry's wonderful, and would you like to read one of them? Yeah. Which should I read? The river. Yeah, I think the river is. Gonna get everyone weeping, and that's what we want. All right, I'm doing this really stupid thing today where I'm reading, I'm talking about these people, and I'm like, this is why they're fantastic. And then I read a poem that's, or, or an essay that's like not very representative of what they actually do. So, Mark Leidner um, is this incredible American contemporary poet who um, writes the funniest poetry I have ever read in my life. Like, I read him, and my eyes just bleed immediately. I was like, this guy. Um, I found him when I was in my early 20s and I just still read his collection about once a week. I am, that is like how fucking batshit crazy I am about this book. So I'm, are we, am I allowed to swear in this podcast? Yeah, because otherwise you're going to have a really horrible makes job. makes us sound cool. Um, I get very excited about books. Anyway, so he he did, he is um, kind of, sorry I'm doing this huge explanation, no, no, but I kind of want people to know I who he is. Yeah. And he um, draws a lot from my other favourite American poet, who's a woman called Chelsea Minnis, who kind of, him and her do this these kind of amazing, ecstatic, crazy metaphors. And I and that, that was kind of where most of the, um, all of the metaphors in my first book, like those long chains of them, that's from both of those two poets specifically. 
Um, and all of the ellipses in my book, they're all from kind of Chelsea Minnis as well. So they're two people that I have borrowed really heavily from because I just adore them so much. Um, so anyway, he does these really, really, really marathon long um, kind of poems about um, with these kind of crazy metaphors and stuff. But um, he kind of, he's, he's one of my favorite kinds of writing, which is what I call endurance comedy, like jokes that go on past the point that they're funny and then they start to become funny again and then they stop being funny and then they get they and then they're funny again for the last 10 minutes like to me that's like like I I really love Stuart Lee and I don't know whether that's like a like a I don't know whether he's controversial in this country or not I don't know but um but I really love him and that's so that this is the same kind of humor to me um but the poem that I particularly like to read is very plain and very stripped back for a Mark Leidner poem. But it also happens to be my favourite poem of all time and is the poem I'm always trying to write but can never write. And so um, it's called The River. The woman told me the saddest thing I had ever heard. I told her I loved her because of what she had told me. Her expression soured. She warned me not to love her for her telling me that. She told me it was okay and maybe even good to love her, only not for that. I responded that I did not love her for that exactly and that she had misunderstood me. I admitted that why I loved her was related to what she had told me, yes, but only tangentially and was that all right? She asked me to elaborate, so I told her that I loved her, not for the things she had told me, but for the courage involved in telling someone something like it, something that sad, which seemed to me to be a great deal of courage. And I told her I also loved her, though far less than for the courage part, although plenty still, for the way in which she had told it to me, which I explained had been, in all seriousness, eloquent and mesmerising. She had a small build, and at that point she laughed like a flower, wilting and blooming. Her nose was in the centre. I decided to show her the river. I picked her up in my hands and carried her, crisscrossing back and down through the steep and elaborate crag of the slope of the riverbank. When my feet were finally in the water, I looked at her and said, The river is deep and fast and it drowns many people, but I still love it. I still love, it, love the river, I told her. But I do not love it because it is deep and fast and drowns many people. I love it because it runs behind my house and I have lived above it forever. Thank you. That's really beautiful. Um, You've spoken of Leidner's poetry as your spiritual home. Can you expand on that? (laughs) Did I say that? God, it sounds like you said it. Uh, well, I I think I think what I was trying to say is when I read when I read this book for the first time, and I said this with um probably both of the other two books at home, but uh, that oh sorry the both of the two books we've been speaking about before, but particularly this one because I read it at such a young point in my life, and I as soon as I read it, you know you have those books that that you read and you just feel at home immediately, and you're like this is this is my book, like, this is, it's so, I have read it so often now that it's, like, it feels, it feels like it belongs to me, like, it feels like Mark Leidner didn't even do any fucking work at all, and he just, like, stole it directly from my brain, that's how often I've read it. His collection is called Beauty is the Case They Gave Me, which is a reference to a Tupac, but um, he also has a couple of other, he's got a new short story collection coming out this year, 
um, called Under the Sea, which I've just got the proof of, and it's awesome. And he's also got um, a couple of other little chat books and stuff you can get. But the yeah, if you want to buy a book of his poetry, Beauty is the Case They Gave Me. And it has this, he's, he's a, he does collage as well. He does these really funny collages. And um, I shouldn't laugh, but the picture on the front of it is a picture of Michael Jordan slam dunking the Twin Towers. I just, it's just, I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh. Bold. Bold as. There's a lot of very bold stuff in this. Um, yeah, and, st- and probably kind of semi-controversial stuff. But he has such a... I don't know, he does it with such a like a warmth and kind of sense of humour that you kind of just shake your head and accept it. Yeah. Um, and specifically this poem, um, what is it that you love about this poem? It's, it's unusual for me to like such a plain poem because I usually like my writing to kind of be a, like a little bit hectic or ornate, and, or ornate or go on for ages and ages. But to me, this just... Um, I, I almost can't talk about it because I love it so much, but I think the the thing, the little stanza at the end, and particularly the last line, I love it because it runs my behind my house and I've lived above it forever. I still can't read that without getting like a little catch in my throat every time I read it. I don't know what it is about it. I just, um, yeah. There's not a single line in his whole book that I would change. Like he's just one of those people for me. Sorry, I sound no. so. I sound like a stalker. I feel like I kind of, yeah. Um, I don't. I don't mean to creep any of these three beautiful authors out, but um, yeah, they are. They are kind of three of my favourite books of all time. So um, I'm sure none of them will ever hear this. Well, we'll we'll send it to them. <laughs> um, I think now would be a good time to hear some of your wonderful poetry spoken about. How all of these amazing writers have filtered into your own work and the different elements that you've taken from them. And I think you're going to read three poems for us, if that's okay? Yeah, I can't remember. You have to tell me which um, ones I can't remember. But. So from your first collection, mm-hmm. um, Ways of Making Love. Yeah. Um, here, just to remind you all, Hero Lindsay Bird's first collection is called Hero Lindsay Bird and it's published by Penguin in the UK and I highly recommend you all get it because the way Hera describes reading Mark is the way I felt when I first read your poetry book and actually ah. <laughs> I have a couple of your poems photocopied and and stuck up next to my desk at work. Oh, that's and, so nice. I've um, got, we've, we made posters of some of them. I should send some like, to you. Yes! <laughs> um, that, I would love that. That sounds cool. Yeah. Um, and I actually have more than one copy of the collection so that at any one time I can give it to someone else. I, I I feel the way about these books as well. I'm like, I my friends were like, you've got to read this amazing book by, called, by Elif Batchman called The Idiot. And they're like, oh, that's so awesome. Have you finished it? Can I borrow it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't. Because I carried, I literally carried it around with me for like three months after I read it. I was like, I can't, if I'd move rooms, I'd take it and put it next but to me on the bedside a, table. Hence the spare friend copy, because I want to tell yeah. everyone about it. I'm like, here you go, here you go. Um, and then two poems from your new chat book, Waste My Life, which speaks to me on so many levels. And um, I would lie down in an intersection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that one's mean. All right, cool. cool. Ways of Making Love. Like a metal detector detecting another metal detector... Like two lonely scholars in the dark clefts of the Cyrillic alphabet. 
like an ancient star slowly getting sucked into a black hole. So hard we break sports, leaving the conveners of the Olympics with a generous redundancy package. You are a denim tree and I am the world's fastest autumn. I am the Atlantic Fortress and you are General Sherman taking me from behind. You stride into council chambers, waving a petition to orgasm. A lip of cloud brushes the roof of the barn. The pale trees curve around the eye and back into the brain. It's like watching porn through a kaleidoscope or a slow wind in a kite factory. Like dogs trying to do it people style but failing due to the inflexibility of the anatomical structure. A cloud of bats floats slowly up into your brain rafters. You roll down my stockings like the sun peeling ocean from a Soviet globe. I want you in a 17th century field, tilling the earth like flesh tractors. In the red shade of a mammoth in the Natural History Museum. In the airlock of a space station, my heart shaking like an epileptic star. Between the plastic sheets of a lobotomy table, because writing poetry about fucking when you could be fucking is the last refuge of the stupid. It's like getting three wishes and wishing for less wishes. It's like designing a flag the exact same colour as the sky. It's like crying over spilled milk before it's out of the cow. It's like breaking into a field at dawn and euthanizing the cow so you can get your crying over and done with and immediately begin adjusting to your new lactose-free existence. But love isn't really like killing cattle, no matter what poetry wants us to believe. The day is a vault, the sun is cracked. Money flying everywhere like really expensive leaves. And here I am begging you to come back, as if you were already gone. Waste my life. Sleep, boredom, gossip, cruelty. Imaginary feuds and small resentments. Various complex plans that amount to nothing. At some point, every poet has to admit art is just a distraction from the boredom of life. Every morning I get dressed and I walk past the road outside the Salvation Army, overflowing with toys and clothes and plastic crap. I think they probably deserve it for being so explicitly homophobic in their core organisational values. I work all day in a bookshop. Each night when I come home it's dark and the rain is falling, covering the world in black diamonds. Some days I feel so deep inside my life I don't think I'll ever get out again. I never read the Russians, but I have read most of the Babysitter's Club. I can't remember the meaning of poetry, other than it's a broken telephone with which to call the dead and tell them a joke. Life is great. It's like being given a rare and historically significant flute and using it to beat a harmless old man to death with. I used to think the more something hurt, the more meaningful it was, but I never learned anything useful from pain. I just drank a bottle of wine and tried to fall asleep. When you're unhappy, you can't think. Pain is just boredom with the stars turned up. There's not much I like in this world. I'm always walking away too early in a conversation and having to yell apologetically back over my shoulder. I don't think good art comes from happiness either. But who said good art was the point? I am so in love with you, I want to lie down in the middle of a major public intersection and cry. It's not how you're supposed to start love poems, but I'm too far gone to work up to it gently. Your naked back in the mirror has cured at least three to four major diseases. 
For you, I would set myself on fire in a smoke detector factory. For you, I would ride through the mall in a Segway, knocking juices out of the hands of thirsty real estate agents. Your lungs, like Christmas stockings, waiting for Santa to climb down the chimney and put cancer in. Your face like the face of a dead French revolutionary in an outdated children's textbook. My stupid heart, like a snow globe, filled with blood. If you left me, I would be forced to gaze despairingly into the middle distance. If you left me, I would be forced to emotionally distance myself from the situation as a self-preservation technique until eventually I healed enough to be able to consider romantic relationships with other people, all the time secretly resenting you for failing to sustain your attraction to me despite the totally involuntary and uncontrollable nature of human desire. Your teeth like a graveyard in springtime. Your tongue like a mattress in a graveyard in springtime. Your tongue on my cunt like a mattress in a graveyard in springtime. My pubic hair like the black carpet on the Titanic. My ass like an ass buffet. You put me in a friendly but uncompromising headlock. You bite me all over my neck and shoulders. I don't know how to write a love poem because love is indescribable. It's this feeling you get where your mind gets hot and everything else gets insignificant with diamonds on it and you have to laugh and laugh at things in your second-hand dress. The slow rising of your eyelid like a girl's skirt. My eyes like two envelopes stuffed with snow and no return address. My eyes like a pair of pale blue cowboy boots walking slowly down a city street towards you. It's like... You finally found someone that interests you and you get more and more interested like a fascinating disease. It's like, for some reason you have to think of the Wild West all the time, but it doesn't make any sense because you don't really care about the Wild West. It's better than TV to look at someone and feel so much happiness. Your smile a single arrow quivering in a tree trunk. It's like, life is not a punishment and sometimes good things happen for no reason. I stare and stare at you like you were a distant mountain in a homeopathic video game with rare and medicinal flowers on it. That was wonderful and thank you so much for speaking with me. That was such a treat. So nice. Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to endlessly talk about my favourite box follow. And um, for listeners, you should also check out Hera's website also called Hera Lindsay Bird, and her Things I Like page, I just want to thank you for that as well, because it introduced me to that video of that woman screaming, I will always love you, and again, I thought... Kevin Blechtum, one of the funniest co- music covers of all time. So, wait, is it a woman? Yeah, her, yeah, name's, her name's Kevin Blechtum. Yeah. yeah, it, um, I found my spirit animal, I think, that is me at karaoke, <laughs> and also Tamara Lowe, what God's going to give you, I'm actually printed that out in case you wanted to read it but i think yeah. we don't have time um yeah i definitely recommend checking that out next time we will be speaking with megan hunter whose um debut book the end we start from was published last year by picador and we will also be having a book club um reading blood child by octavia butler Octavia Butler, that was Femi chiming in at the very end. <laughs> um, and we're going to end with a song that was is actually on your thing, Things I Like page, oh, which yeah. again is 
excellent. What is it? Um, it's by the Fruit Pastels. Ah, oh, that's my... I was going to suggest that to you when you sent me the email. I'm so obsessed with the song. Oh, my yeah. God. Um, and I'll play it. It's I mean, by an Australian band who have only got this one live performance on YouTube. And actually, the woman who is in that is now a famous Australian novelist. Um, I think her name is... Oh, God, I can't remember her name is. But you can read her book about whales if you like this. It's very different. <laughs> um, I'm going to play it, play it off my laptop now, but we'll actually play it properly via um I don't even think there is a high high quality recording of it so you'll just have to get the YouTube one <laughs> 